You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. We started this new series. We were in the book of Mark for a while, um, seeing who Jesus is and who he, how he completely interrupts our lives, how he completely shapes everything we do. And then we went through the gospel looking at who Jesus is, but now we're in Acts, and we need to see how the church follows Christ. After the resurrection, after the ascension, what does the church do in response? And I've said this before, I believe that the scripture is not written for a historical lesson, but it gives us insight on how we are to live our lives today. The church in Acts should still exist today. We should be the church of Acts. We should still look at the scripture and say, what does this mean? What does the kingdom of God look like through the church today? And so this morning we are in Acts, we are in chapter 2, finishing that up. Um, we have seen so far in Acts that Christ has ascended, that he told his disciples to stay here and wait till I give my spirit to you. We've seen the Holy Spirit pour out. We've seen the gift of tongues. And last week, Jared talked about the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy, how we are supposed to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Gifts are not something that have stopped because all of a sudden the work of God is done. There's still a mission for the church. There's still a vision for the church, and the Holy Spirit is still at work in us. Does that make sense? So that's kind of where we are. And so we see this happen. We see the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit coming in chapter 2. We see Peter is able to preach this. He's able to explain to people that God is doing something. Last week I talked about how we should see everything. We should see every question that our unbelieving friends have and say, let me show you how that points to our need for God. We should always be able to articulate the void you have is because you were created for him. Peter is able to look at this, this people and say, let me show you how this all points to Christ and the fulfillment of that desire in your heart. And then we see 3,000 come to faith that day. So that's where we leave off here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 41. And they vote, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and to breaking of bread and prayers. And the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord, the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. So here we have the Holy Spirit pours out. We see this first, first great message. Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved. This first major altar call, I guess, if you will. 3,000 are saved. And their first response, the first thing that we see is this is what it looked like. This is how church was. This is how the church of God looked. Now, when I first, I've heard this message, or not this message, I've heard this passage preached, uh, and the one we'll look at in a few minutes, and I see verses like this, and they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all that they had need. I see that, and instantly I think, I don't like this. This is a hippie commune. They're all just living together, smelling the flowers, you know, making food for each other. This is weird. Anybody else ever feel that way? Kind of like, I don't know what to do with it. Okay, it's just me. Just me is afraid of hippie stuff. Just me. Sorry if you grew up in the 70s and that was you. Um, you know, I don't like these kind of things where people are all living together. I like to go camping for one night with me and like two or three friends. I, can, I, I know people love Creation Fest. 
the big, the big, I know, I know people love it. To me, where there's thousands of people outside for a week in tents in the middle of summer, that's not good for me. I need showers at least twice a day. So the idea of selling everything, not having a shower, not having a home, not having clean clothes, I don't like that idea. Um, there's a few times that I go without those kind of things. That's when I hike the Appalachian Trail for two days. That's my max. Or when I go on a mission trips, and that's about four days, three days. It's usually flight time that I don't shower because, let's face it, there's no showers on an airplane. Um, I don't like this idea of, like, what, what are you talking about? Selling everything that you have. And, and they all had, and there was nobody in need. What, what does this look like? This is not a proof text for hippie communes, okay? Let me, let me just start with that. That's not what this is. This, this is not something that says, hey, you, to be a good Christian, need to be poor. I've heard that. I've had people come up to me and say, hey, I don't know why you have a car. I don't know why you get paid. I don't know why you do this. Shouldn't Christians be going out and living on the streets and preaching? No. <laughs> I don't see Jesus say that. I don't see that. Could some people be called to that? Absolutely. Is that my call? Not yet. Hopefully never. It's probably not your call. We don't see that as Christians we have to be broken, desolate people. That's not what this verse is. Let me say you what it is about. See, they're saved, and instantly their priorities are now kingdom priorities. The kingdom of God's priorities have now become their priorities. We see first four things I want to point out, and then we'll look at a few bit more. But the four, four things that we can see right here is verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number one, that they, right away they're saved and they need teaching. They need to be taught. They devoted themselves to teaching. We live in a society that hates teaching. We do. Even though we, we love getting our degrees, we hate for somebody to teach us something, unless they're a professor. Honest, nobody agrees with me right now. I think I like to learn. Proverbs talks over and over again about the fool doesn't want instruction. He doesn't want teaching. He doesn't want rebuke. But the wise person receives rebuke, receives instruction, receives learning from somebody else. The wise person is always receiving learning. And in the kingdom of God, we've got to be people who devote ourselves to Scripture. Devote ourselves to learning. To, God, what are you saying? What does your word say about this? Yesterday, I had uh, Jehovah's Witnesses show up on my porch step, um, and I had, we were babysitting a dog, so I couldn't open the door, so we were, like, talking the whole time through the screen, and it wasn't, I was trying to be mean or anything. I said, hey, look, I have a dog, and he can run away, but let's have a conversation. We talked for about a half hour or so, and they said to me, they said, well, I began to tell them, you know, what I believe and, and why we're different, and they said, well, do you have a Bible? I literally went like this. Yeah, I do. And they're like, Whoa, I've, I, I haven't seen that before. And then I began to engage them in conversation about the gospel and what I believe, about the Trinity, about who Jesus is, about who the Holy Spirit is. And they said, we usually get doors slammed in our face and nobody able, is able to talk to us about this. And I thought, that's really sad. That your average Christian doesn't even know how to begin a conversation and that to find a Bible, they don't even know where they left it last. We need to be people who loves instruction. We love the Word of God. We love to hear messages. We love to, to have people pouring into us the truth. The first priority that we see here in this passage, they get saved in a massive group, and then all of a sudden they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teach us. Tell us how to live this life. The second thing that we see is fellowship. It says the teaching and fellowship. It's right there. Teaching and fellowship. See, fellowship in today's society is something that we 
drastically lack. Drastically. Um, I've said before about my, my hometown and some of my childhood friendships. I feel like, and I, I'm just being honest, people in most communities and in most social circles, they are friends up until the point where you tell them, hey, this is probably a bad idea. Hey, l- let me tell you why you shouldn't go on that trip to Cancun with all your friends who are all firefighters and they like to get drunk a lot. Let me tell you. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? We all of a sudden, we, we, we clam up. Let me, let me tell you why it's probably not a good thing to go to that club when you have a wife at home. All of a sudden, we get very, we're friends, we're friends, we're buddies, we're, 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 we're friends, but we can't speak truth to each other. And the moment we do, well, they said this to me, so I can't. I was reading recently about uh, a counselor, and he was saying he was sitting down with a married couple, and he asked them who their friends were, who their Christian friends were, and they said they had nobody. He knew right away that he had a long journey ahead of him. The number one thing that Christian couples need is Christian couple friends to pour into their life. That's why I, me and Ashley have friends to pour into us. If I was ever, ever thinking about leaving my wife, cheating on my wife, looking at another woman, anything, I've got about five guys who would punch me in the face tomorrow. Like, honestly. That is... Intimacy brings life. And the first thing, these 3,000 random people who hear the, the message of Peter preaching to them, the gospel, they say, teach us. Give us fellowship. Give us intimacy. We need vulnerability. We need real relationship that goes beyond just a Sunday morning meet and greet. We need something real to keep us in this path. What, do you, what does God want for us? That's the initial church. It's number one, teaching. Number two, fellowship. Number three, it says breaking of bread. This could be communion or meals, and it was probably both. The breaking of bread here was that they ate together. They shared the Lord's Supper together. They ate in each other's homes. L- let me ask you the last close friend- friendship that you had that you didn't go out to eat with that person. There is something throughout all of history, something in mankind, I don't even know, I don't even know how to explain it, that we love to eat with one another when we're friends. You want to be a, you, you're interested in a relationship with somebody? What do you do with them? You take them out on a date. You go to Red Lobster. You go to wherever you're going. And you're eating. That's the weirdest thing to do as a social. Let me see how you chew food. Like, oh, we could be friends. I was going to say a lot of things right there, and I'll just stop. I'll just stop myself. But there's, there's something about the, the fellowship of communion and breaking bread together that there's, there's not just this super intimate meal only for believers, but there's something about actually inviting people into your home, actually going and eating a meal together and sharing in relationship. Something about why you're eating food, you also want to talk about who you are. Two things that should not go together seem to go together all of a sudden. It's inhumanity across every layer of society. The sharing of a meal is a very intimate act. It's an act of friendship. It's an act of communication. You usually don't see enemies eating together. You don't call, like, the person you can't stand at work and say, hey, why don't we, uh, why don't we get lunch today? You, you don't do that. But it's the person you really want to know better that you're eating with. Number four is prayer. It's seeking his presence. They were able to say, we need, as new believers, we need instruction. We need real relationship. We need to be able to eat together, to fellowship together. And we need to seek God's will in this. We need to seek his face and his presence 
in everything that we do. Right off the bat, these are the four things that we see. And I, wanna, I want us to look briefly at, at this for a moment before we get into a little bit more here. Do we see this in our church today? Do we see churches that are dedicated to this as a lifestyle? To this as something that they do on a regular basis? I, Ashley and I, we've had, and this isn't something to say about us, this is something I've had to learn. I can't tell you the amount of growth in my life in the last four or five years because we've been intentional about relationships. We've been intentional with asking people over for dinner. We've been intentional with seeking friendships beyond Sunday morning. The church can never be the church if we're not intentional about these four things. If we're only good at eating meals together, we'll be fat but spiritually dead. We won't be led by his presence. If we're only praying together, then we might not have intimacy. We might not know the the hurts and struggles of somebody else. Does that make sense? These four things have to be active. It's not one or the other. They all have to be active in a church to really be the church that God God has designed. The next thing I want to look at here, though, there's, there's really five things. We talked about those four. Look at, look at verse 47 before we do this, though. Verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people, the Lord added to their number day by day. Verse 43. And all came upon every soul. There's two things here that the early church did. There was a sense of awe to people who saw. And people were coming to salvation. Just by the way they were being the church together, people were coming to faith in Christ. Day by day, people were added to the church. I would love to see that. I want to see that. I desire to see that here at City Lights, where every day there's a new believer popping up in this church. Not just in this church, but in the church across Scranton, that there's new believers every day. I'm really excited, honestly. I'm really excited about the the baptism that we have coming up with all the different churches that we're linking hands together and we're celebrating lives coming to faith in Christ. I'm also really saddened that I see most of these churches, they can't find somebody to baptize. They're great people, but we've got to be a church on mission together, looking like the, the church of Acts and seeing people come to faith every day. When these things are in place, there should be awe because it doesn't make sense to the world. It doesn't make sense for people to want to learn, to want to be intimate and vulnerable with each other. This, here, this text that we're looking at is a text that says your, your isolated, consumer, white picket fence, American dream, Christianity does not reach people with the gospel. Your consumer-driven me, this is my Sunday morning, this is how I attend church, this is my house, this is, this is my thing, doesn't cause awe. It doesn't shock the minds of unbelievers. It doesn't make the people down the street say, you know what, I want that because their house looks like mine and they have a good job and they don't have any relationships and they don't really love anything other than themselves. But when people see a church that looks the opposite of that, they're amazed by that and they say, how do I get that? Because you're happy and you're, you're not doing any of these things that I'm doing that I've built my whole life on. See, the kingdom of God is not built, and let me say this, this will make a lot of Americans angry. The kingdom of God is not built on capitalism or democracy. It is a, is a monarchy. He is king. He is sovereign. He says what goes. We don't get a right, we don't get a say in this. I've, I've had this often. Well, at, at my old work, I had some 
unbelieving friends say, well, I don't want to believe in a God who doesn't like that. You don't get to believe it. It doesn't matter what you believe. God is God. You don't vote on the God of your choice. God is God. And his kingdom looks drastically different than our American society. I love our society. I love, I think as a nation, it's great because we get the vote. We all have a say. It's, it's good most of the time. Capitalism is very good for a country, but it's not his kingdom. Me building up my career, my house, my white picket fence, my thing, is very good for a country's wealth. But for his kingdom, it's the opposite of everything he's trying to do. He came to give, to be a servant to all. Not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. This is the model of the kingdom of God, that we need to see others' needs higher than our own needs. That is not capitalism. That's not the American dream. And so as a culture, as a nation, we struggle with what does it mean to really live this Christian life, to be the church, because it's so opposite of everything we see as a society. It's the opposite. We've got to recognize that his kingdom is not the United States of America. I think he's blessing America. I'm praying for America. But guess what? He didn't die for America. God bless America. But this is, this is not his chosen people. Sorry if that offends you. The church is his chosen people. We are supposed to be a, a completely different kingdom than what we see every other nation look like. We're supposed to be completely different. See, the importance of community has to be a priority, not to show you how to lose your possessions, but how to be on mission with him, how to be a Christian. This verse is not telling you, hey, let me show you, you got to sell everything and then God gets you into heaven. This is saying your mission has to be the kingdom's mission. You have to be on mission with him. One thing I want to point out this morning, and we're going to jump around here a little bit, is this is not the first time, and this is not the last, well, this is the first time, but this is not the last time that we see this in the book of Acts. Almost the exact same thing is said two chapters later. Let's look at that in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the t their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, bought the pro and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by an apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought the money, or brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So basically he's saying the same thing of what we see two chapters earlier. They had a commonality, nobody had need among them, and they were selling things. They were living for one another, not for themselves. And even Barnabas, this guy, sells his, his stuff as an example to us of generosity and lays it at the apostles' feet and says, do what you want with it. What's mine is yours. Go to chapter 5. And a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Why it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? Why is it that you have, you have contri con contrived this deed in your heart? 
You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died. He heard these words and he died. Okay, let's keep going. And great fear came upon all who heard it, understandably. The young, the young man rose and, and wrapped, them, wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, that's so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down on his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard these things. So basically, people are selling stuff, they're living in one court, and this couple says, hey, let's sell our stuff, and because... Because everybody's doing this, we got to sell our stuff too. Let's sell our stuff, and then we'll hold on to a part of this. We won't give everything away. We'll hold on to a part, but we pretend we're giving everything. We want the church to think that we've given everything. So what Peter discerns this deceitfulness in their heart, and Ananias dies. Three hours later, the wife comes and says, yeah, that's what I sold it for, and she dies. I love that he says the same people who are coming, who have buried your husband, they're at the door ready for you, and then she falls down dead. This is an insane story. It makes us all want to think, well, I better go and sell my house right now. This is probably what this means. This is not what it's saying. This, this whole example of, of giving and what the church looked like is in here twice because we, gotta, we can't miss the point. We can't miss what's happening here. See, it's not mandatory for you to be a better Christian to sell everything that you had. It was never about selling everything here. It's about the heart for honesty, vulnerability, and mission. It's the heart of, of honesty and community. Let me explain before I get back to this passage. The other day, actually just yesterday, uh, we're, we're dog-sitting right now, and, um, and the dog was downstairs, and he, he has like a, we have like a little uh, crate for him. And Haley, I could see it. She's obsessed with putting the dog in the crate, locking the crate, teasing him while he's in the crate, and then letting him back out, and then putting him back in, letting him back out. And it was starting to really frustrate me. And I told her, do not touch the crate again. Stop touching the crate. The dog doesn't want the crate. Leave him alone. Make sense? Everybody? So here's what happened. About five minutes later, I'm in the living room, and I hear her shutting the crate, and I hear some stuff. And Ash is doing dishes or something in the kitchen. And, and I say, Haley, did you shut the crate? And she's like, no, I didn't. The dog just went in there. I said, did you shut the crate door? And no. And Ash goes, I saw you do it. You're, you go in timeout. I saw you do it. I said, get upstairs and she starts crying hysterically like crying this has happened the same scenario has happened over and over again with my two daughters Haley and Faith they're good girls but they're liars and it annoys me they're in this stage where they lie all the time Faith Faith oh I I know one day she'll grow into her name but right now (laughs) right now she will stand and she will not tell you the truth even if it's easier i've said over and over to them just tell me the truth like that's all i want to know because the truth is if she would have just said yeah i did sorry i probably would i probably wouldn't have sent her to the room but the act of lying does something about in our community in my house i need to trust what you're saying is real i need to trust you beyond your ability to perform what i ask i need to trust you that is the number one thing in my house. So when my girls lie, it 
it's a bigger punishment than when they just said, I punched my sister in the face. I would rather them say that than tell me that they lied about it. And it's the same thing here. This is an issue. We don't see, see, the funny thing is, this whole idea of God all of a sudden killing two people in the New Testament, two individuals, because they lied about how much money they had actually sold the house for while they were giving it away, is very strange. Let me explain. Because in the Old Testament, we don't really see this too often. We don't see, even in the Old Testament, God coming down and smiting individuals. We see him taking out nations who are in rebellion, who are, have idols, who are bringing idols into God's chosen people. We see him coming and doing that for nations. But this idea of an individual God just smiting, we tend to think of this as Christians, but the truth is it doesn't happen all that often in the Bible. God didn't smite a lot of people all the time. That's not the God of the, of the New or the Old Testament. God always had reasons. He always had purpose. And let me explain. Here we have God's presence God's dwelling place is the church on the earth. We are his dwelling place. We are where he resides. In the Old Testament, we see two examples of this. We see first the Ark of the Covenant, and we also see the temple. When somebody went into God's dwelling place in the temple, to the Holy of Holies, and they weren't worthy, what happened? They died. When somebody touched the Ark of the Covenant, his dwelling place, what happened? They died. Here in the first example of the church, being the church, being on mission, being his dwelling place on the earth, somebody comes in with dishonesty and deceit and tries to corrupt the church. He says, no, that's not how the church exists. That's not what we are. That's not what we do. You're not going to disrupt and, and pollute my dwelling place. That's what this is about. This has nothing to do with, hey, let's all sell all of our stuff and be vagabond Christians. We don't see that through the rest of the New Testament. We don't see that. We see rich Christians throughout Peter and Paul's life who are giving, who are giving of themselves. They still have nice houses. They still had a lot of things, but they were able to give when God said give. They were able to not let those things have them. They had things. You guys understand what I'm saying? The point here is they were, Ananias and Sapphira corrupted God's dwelling place, the church, the community of God, they brought deceit into it. And God could not allow that on the earth. We don't see this a whole lot today, but it does happen. There's a story about Spurgeon, and in one of his services, he calls out a man by name in his congregation. He didn't even know the man. He had never met him before, and he calls him out in the middle of service and says, you're stealing from your boss. Imagine if I did that right now, just you, you're corrupt and you're stealing. God's spirit spoke to him in the middle of a service. He calls him out, and after the service, that man found him. He didn't even know what he looked like. Spurgeon had no idea who this guy was. He came up and said, that's me. I'll repent. I'll give everything back. Please don't tell my boss. The guy was turned to repentance because God spoke to Spurgeon and said, this deceit can't happen. We hear all the time about church corruption, and it makes me so frustrated. Pastors embezzling from the church, pastors or elders or deacons or whatever sleeping with somebody else in the church. We see a lot of immorality in the church, and that is not God's design. And God will find it and illuminate it and said, this is not what the church is supposed to look like. That's why these guys are in the news, because God is bringing them into light. God's church is his dwelling place. He dwells in us, and he doesn't want pollution. He does, not saying we're perfect people. That's not what I'm saying. Don't say well, this week, if you like, 
sin in some way, you're not coming in because next week I'm going to be like, bam, 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 got you all. That's your sin. That's, that's not what I'm saying. God's grace is an ocean. We're all sinking. That's what we were talking about this morning. But there is something about, it frustrates me when deceitful ministers think that they can be on mission together while never in repentance and still stealing from the very body of God. Whatever that looks like. Spiritual manipulation, that was a thing recently where a pastor was manipulating people into doing what he wanted, was aggressive and angry and not showing grace. I'll... I say that, too, because all those pastors can also come to repentance once that's exposed and they can be restored. And that's what, I, that's what the gospel is always about. It's never about exposing sin just to make you embarrassed. It's about exposing sin so that you can come to life and find life in Christ. Whether you're in ministry or you're not in ministry, that's what exposing sin is always for. Bringing life where there's death. Amen. I love that the end of the, the middle of that passage and the end of that, and the great fear came upon the church and upon all those who heard these things. The fear that they had there wasn't like, man, God really doesn't love us. We should all be really honest and be on our best behavior. It's a fear like God's serious about his church. I love that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church here today just as much as he was in Acts. And I pray that God reveals brokenness, he reveals corruption, and he gives us the right mission, the right heart to be on mission. See, I asked this morning, what are, the, what are those things that we can come to church with and we pretend to have let go? We can pretend that we're better than that we don't do, but yet we still hold up... We hold on to these things, whether it's our time, we don't want to let go of time, we don't want to let go of our money, our pride, our addictions, our, our values, our talents. We hang on to these things, but we come into the church like, yeah, we're good people. We go to church, we love Jesus, but yet this is mine, and this is mine, this is mine. Whatever it is, the church has to be people that says, none of this is mine, it's all his. If he wants me to live in a nice house, if he wants me to live in a van down, down by the river, whatever. We can do that. That was a joke for some of you guys. Wow. God, see, this is it. God, God loves a church that loves the church and loves God. God loves people that love people and him. Does that make sense? God is doing something in the church of Acts because they got it. It's not about their individual things. It's about the church being on mission together because we love God. Nobody, was, nobody had any need because they all loved each other. As a teen, and let me, let me be real honest with you for a minute. As a teenager, I, I loved church. I went to this big church um, that had a lot of people. I had a big youth group. There was about 150 teenagers at this youth group. And my youth pastor loved me. He invested into me. He gave me a camera, and he said, I, I know you want to do filming, so why don't you make videos? Me and my friend made videos. We were like the celebrities of our youth group. It was awesome for me. It was awesome for me. Everybody knew me. I literally would have teenagers come up to me as a teenager and say, hey, uh, did you make a video for this week? And I'd say, no, I didn't. Well, that's the only reason I came. That's a horrible reason to come, just so you know. But that did something where it was all about me. And then in 2000, uh, Ashley's cousin asked my father to help start a church. And here's the real kicker. It didn't look like this. It was in his basement of his house. 
Literally, a basement of a house. They set some pews up, a guitar, a microphone, and a drum set. And here I am as a teenager. All of a sudden, my dad, who was like an elder at the church I really loved, was now, we're in a basement. And I'm angry. And I hate my family. I hate the church. I hate everything about this because I didn't enjoy it. I hated it. I was rude to my parents. Me and my sister, we were always saying negative things about my dad. We were angry because we were taken from what we liked and what we got something out of and put in a place where we didn't like it at all. And that lasted for about a year and a half of this complete like, just animosity in my heart toward my parents, mainly my dad, toward the church, to everything because we're in a basement. I didn't want to be there. In the wintertime, they got the big old industrial heaters on, you know what I'm talking about? Like the, the turbines that look like they're going to shoot off a jet. Like I, we had Sunday school in a garage, literally, in a garage, and it was freezing in the winter. And my teacher didn't know how to say half the books of the Bible. It made me mad because I was smarter than her, and I was at a bigger church before this. I was angry. And then one day, I don't even know how. God realized, I, God opened my eyes to see the other teens in that youth group, in that church. I had something pretty awesome at the church I came from. I enjoyed it. And I realized all of a sudden, there are people in this church who don't have anything. This is all I have. And why am I sitting here angry at them when I can be giving to them? God did something in my heart. And I, instead of running from them, I ran to them. And I was able to start a youth ministry there with the help of her other cousin. And then I became the youth pastor there. That was my, I was, I think, 19 years old, I became the youth pastor. If we are people who only see what we can get, we will hate church. We will. If you're only looking at how do I get something out of church, what, what does church give to me instead of what is God doing, how can we be on mission together, how can I make sure that nobody has a need, that we will love church. We will love it. If that is the position of our hearts. What I'm not saying this morning in this message, and what the text is not saying to you, it's not saying quit your job, sell everything, live in the church basement, and hope that the church feeds you. That's not what I'm saying this morning. Actually, Paul talks about that in Thessalonians, where you did have people who could work jobs, and they were milking off of the system. They were, well, church, give me some money. And Paul says, no, get a job. That's not what this text is about. It's not saying, hey, if you go to your home groups and if you spend time in community, if you pray real hard and all of a sudden you give, sell all you have, then God's going to love you more. That's not what it's saying either. They still met in houses that people owned. They still worked. They still, they still had needs, but they were able to give of themselves. What I am saying is that the church is much more than Sunday attendance. It's much more than this. It's much more than just our individual what we can consume. I've seen it where the average American thinks of church as super boring. Why would I want to go? See, our, our system of doing church on Sunday mornings, there, there's nothing, there's really nothing to it. I can understand why if your mindset is I go because I have to, because God will love me on Sunday morning, then, then, then I understand why you would rather stay at home and watch football. But when we see the, the depths of community, the depths of life that can really come out of a church being the church together and not just here at this time on this day of the week, then there's nothing else I, I enjoy more. If that was portrayed in, in media, then maybe more people will go to church. 
if that was portrayed in, in the church, maybe more people would want to come. Maybe we would have, day by day, people were added to their numbers. We've we got to be a church that fulfills the purpose of the church. It's deep, honest relationships. It's corporate worship and songs and meals and communion. It's knowing God through instruction and through prayer. It's, it's generously giving without any reservation. This is what the church in Acts looked like. This is what I desire to be, to see. This is what brings life. Let me, let me say if you are the kind of person who needs to see perks before you can buy something. Perks of belonging to the body or perks of membership. All right, let me, let me just say just from personal experience, if you need these kind of perks, if you're a selfish person and you need to hear them, let me give you a few just from what I've experienced in my own life, and they're overwhelming. I already said about people punching me in the face if I, if I sin. That's one, whether you think of that as a perk or not. It is, because it helps me. In the past six months, I've helped four people move in six months. I've also had never had a time where I've moved where I didn't have at least 10 to 15 people show up and help me move. I've seen in this church, every person who has a baby, all of a sudden their their fridges should be filled. Usually they are. People who move, their fridges are full. People who are sick, their fridges are full. When I was sick in September for 18 days, I got sick of you feeding me. There was that much food. Literally. Every day I was getting a new meal, and you guys must think I eat a lot because you were giving me casseroles this big. My, my fridge was full. I didn't know what to do with it all. See, that's the church who says there should be nobody in need. If somebody's sick, if somebody's moving, if somebody needs help, let's just do it. Let's, let's feed them. Let's, let's help them however that we can. Babysitters. I have two kids. And I've read books that say, hey, pastors should have a date night every week or every month. Those are, those are, those are lies, <laughs> just so you know. It's not realistic. I don't know what, what cloud they're on, but that's not realistic. But what really is amazing is that I can't tell you the amount of trips that my wife and I have been able to take overnight or just date nights or date days where we get to go see a movie that have been you guys, the church, babysitting my kids. And we have babysat your kids. There have been times, honestly, where people have babysat my kids, and I said to Ash, she said, I really feel guilty. We should, like, pay them something. She said, Jesse, we're family. This is what family does. Family takes care of family. That's the church. The church should always be, how do we help? How do we give? How do we invest? Do you need a babysitter? Do you, do you, do you need a meal? Do you need me to help move? Bob and I were just joking about the amount of people that we've moved in the last few weeks. Since I've been here, I feel like I, sh- I should have just started a moving service. That's literally, and we're not a church that big. Like, if we ever get to, like, 500, we, I will have to create a City Lights moving team. Like, that will be a ministry team. It's just, it's what should come out of us. And I don't say that with, like, any kind of, like, man, I move people, look at me. I'm saying that because that's what, I've never been like, this is the worst day of my life. I'm helping some, no, I'm helping people move. It's part of the community it shouldn't be about my needs versus her needs. What can I get out of this? There, there are real perks to community. There really is. But it's also an investment. It's a huge investment. It means us helping people move when we don't want to help them move. It means us making meals when we really don't feel like cooking. 
It's a hot day today, and you're here, and I thank you for that. Kenny told me last week, put the air conditions in. I said, nah, it's 45 degrees. Sorry about that. It'll be in here next week. I appreciate it. But there, there's an investment and there's a reward to being the church. And when we really are, we will see the church being added to day by day. That's what I want to see. That's what I desire to see. Jesus said that I came to give you life and life more abundantly. He does that through salvation, of course, first. But he also does that through his church. He gives us life through this church, through, through the church. Through the church. 